Well, thanks, Aru family. Good morning, MCBC family. Uh, that's a word you're going to hear a lot over the next month, the word family. Family matters. Family matters as much now as it ever has, maybe more so when the level of separation and the anxiety that results has come to the forefront. Family matters. And we're going to spend the next four weeks talking about family about being single as something that is prized and valued and worthy and called by by God, about families that uh, that are charged with the task of raising children, but parents and grandparents. We're going to talk about marriage. Uh, we're going to talk about the nobility of family, however it's constituted, single moms and single dads, with the heroic effort they put into their responsibilities. Widows and widowers, family matters. Uh, Today we're going to talk about families at their best. And it prompts that question. I mean, how is your family doing? Whatever that family is for you. And you may be wondering, well, how is it that that I really know? What, What are the indications? What are the signs? I think we're doing pretty good. So what I thought we'd do today, and this is maybe a little bit different than some of our Sunday morning time, but I want to give you 10 characteristics or 10 traits of a healthy family. Many of these, I think, are, are grounded in Scripture, but, but we're not going to work through any one particular passage of Scripture. We're going to look at some of the strong scriptural framework, like the one that the Aru family just read for us so, so beautifully. But we would like to give you these 10 characteristics. And as you're listening, maybe you want to be thinking, you know, if, um, if we were sort of ranking ourselves, scale of, of 1 to 10, 1 being this is maybe an area of, of less health, an area for improvement, and, and 10 being healthy and vital in the lives of our family, how would we do in these different areas? Does that sound reasonable? And we should be done by next Sunday. No, 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 no. Here's the first, first characteristic of, of what I think constitutes families at their best, irrational love. Irrational love. Now, that doesn't mean as a family you're irrational, but what it means is that there, there is this sense that everybody in the family feels loved and treasured. It's what one person said, it's the love you get just for showing up. And that doesn't mean showing up before curfew, that just means showing up in the world. Like the moment that you arrived, there was going to be this this boundless kind of love that greeted and surrounded you all of your days. In a healthy family, love is spread lavishly to each and every member of the family. And that happens regardless of age or gender or competence or attractiveness or, or, or performance capabilities. There's a psychiatrist who coined that word, irrational love. And I think what they had in mind is, is that wonderful moment when your parents first looked at you and saw your red, wrinkled little body in the hospital and thought, I'm just going to pour more love into this child than they could possibly be able to take in. And there's not going to be limits on it around time. It's not going to fade through the years. Irrational love, it flows through a child's life so much so that when they're a thousand miles away and there they are living in a college dorm room, they're drifting off to sleep, 
They can't help but think about their family. And and there's a little bit of homesickness, and that's a good thing, because being home has been great. They remember the words that were spoken to them every day. They remember those embraces that happened at the nighttime. And they, they remember a thousand loving conversations and the boundaries. And yes, they remember loving discipline, but they remember that there was support, that you were there with them through a thousand piano lessons and soccer games and choir concerts, and there was help with laundry and food and birthday parties. And as they think about all of this, how they were irrationally loved from the day that they were born, their heart just kind of warms up. And their esteem is, it's built up. And their thankfulness to God grows deeper. And they're able to drift off to sleep, feeling a love that bridges the thousand-mile separation between them and home. Wouldn't that be a gift to give to your children? I sort of naively made my way into the world imagining that everybody had that gift. And it wasn't till I was lying awake in a college dormitory reflecting on the conversations of the day that I realized that there were some, too many in fact, who'd never really known that. There is a love that flows from generation to generation. And yeah, maybe it doesn't make sense. And yeah, maybe it exists in the face of some pretty awful circumstances, but it's irrational and it's good. And sometimes there's a kind of playfulness to that kind of love. Playful little routines, activities, a a little bit of tender teasing that says, I love you. It, It says that even when the words aren't spoken, the word should still be spoken, but, but it says it in a different way. Now, I realize that, that this is hard for some of us. Some of you grew up in families where this was not the case, where you were not loved this way. Just because you didn't get it doesn't mean you cannot give it. See, I think that's one of the distortions of, of, the, of the modern era, and the, the deep insights that counseling have given us into the human psyche. We can understand the damage that happens when kids don't grow up with that. But that doesn't mean that we live our lives in the posture of a victim and says, I can never be more than what I experienced. Of course you can. Isn't that exactly what the gospel promises? That, that there is the possibility of transformation? That you can be, as Tim prayed so beautifully for us, more than what we were when God first met us, that there is transformation in our lives. And so some of you, having never received physical affection, you know how clumsy it felt the first time you tried to wrap your arms around your kids, but you stuck with it, and it was worth it. Some of you stumbling away, figuring out how to find those loving, good words to say to your children, and they didn't come out easily, but you stuck with it. And God eventually got you there. Every mom, every dad can get there. There is, there's just no excuse for not passing love on to your kids, physically, verbally, even when it wasn't passed on to you. So that's the first characteristic, if you'd like, of of functionings, of families functioning kind of at their healthy best. How are you doing? with that one, with the amounts of love that get felt and expressed 
within your family. Does everybody experience that? <laughs> or is that something that that you want to commit around and say, we're going to pour some energy and effort and creativity into seeing how we can grow this in our family? Here's the second trait of a healthy family, strong communication. Communication that happens with grace and, and with truth, with authenticity, and, and happens consistently through the life of the family. And what sets the tone for this in most families? It's the relationship between a mom and a dad. If mom and dad can talk openly and with vulnerability with each other, if they can listen to each other and do so lovingly, if they can work through conflict together without yelling and screaming and slamming doors and running off and sulking in their own rooms, if mom and dad can resolve disputes without drawing blood, the kids... Kids see that, and they, and they catch that, and they hold on to it, that there are ways for issues, even hard issues, to be talked about, and they can be reconciled, and they can be resolved. Lots of reasons why this might not happen in a family. Here's a few that the kids were given. We asked why they have a hard time talking at home. One young man said this, I tried talking to my dad, but you know he travels a lot, and when he gets home, he's exhausted. We don't want to bug him. He just plays his video games, drinks his beer, and goes off to bed. How about this? I tried to talk to my mom, but she works, and we've got other kids in the family, and she's always tired, and I, I just can't talk to her. Or this one, I tried to talk to my parents, but when I brought up that thing I wanted to talk about, they just got mad at me. And so I'm not bringing that thing up again. Or I tried to talk to my parents, and after we talked, they got into a big fight, and it went on all night. Hmm. Open communication, real communication, can lead to some amazing things in the life of a family. But parents, parents particularly, we have to be proactive about this. You actually have to think, what are the windows of opportunity where there is enough time, enough quality time for us to do this? You know who does this great? <laughs> My wife does this great. All through the teenage years when kids had to be driven everywhere. And admittedly, sometimes I felt like, oh, that was a chore, what a disruption in the day. She looked forward to it. Because what she thought is, I get half an hour of captive time with one of our kids, and we can talk. So late at night when I'm drifting off to sleep, she's the one getting the phone call and with excitement going to pick somebody up because, again, captive time, good time. We made kind of a pact in the life of our home, and you don't have to do this, but it just it worked for us. When our kids were young, we would always eat dinner together around the table, no television on. Sometimes the kids wanted to do other stuff. But no, we're going to have dinner together around the table. We're going to talk to one another. Now, admittedly, now that the kids are older and the schedules are crazy, that's harder to do. But we still try and do it as we can when everybody is home and you get to the table. and You don't get to leave the table just because you're finished. You stay and you linger. And again, I'll tell you something that's that's really good, and it's not me. It's Karina. She She makes sure that that after dinner there's tea or coffee. And it's not just because we need the caffeine. It's one more excuse to stay around the table. 
So you don't leave too soon. Parents, when are we actually going to carve out that time with the kids? Is it bedtime? Is it morning? Is it evening? Is it in the car? I'm just asking you, when, when is your time? Think about communication. How do you rank yourselves, your family, on this one? Are you thinking, well, we, we run pretty fast. We, we don't get around to it very much. Be honest with yourself. Is this an area for development in your life, in your family? Here's a third area, a characteristic of, uh, of healthy families. It's the celebration of uniqueness. I don't know whether it's just God's love of variety or God's sense of humor, but have you ever noticed how he delights in placing polar opposites within the same family? Does that happen to you? It happens to us. Opposite personalities, opposite temperaments, living in the same home, introverts and extroverts, analytical and emotional, uh, artistic types and science-minded types, city mouse and country mouse, soft as butter, tough as nails. Actually, there's no tough as nails in our house, but God says of all of us, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. There are no accidents in the family. God treasures each member. I'm talking to each of you as an individual now. God treasures you, treasures your uniqueness. What's unique about you doesn't bother God. It excites God. He, he celebrates it. He intended it. And then he asks us as families to do the very same thing. To be custodians celebrating the uniqueness of each member of the family. There's a book written by a man named Rodney Clapp. We quoted this, those of you who are following on in your notes. It's called Families at the Crossroads. And he goes so far as to say that, you know, the family is meant to be kind of a training camp, a training ground where we learn to accept and appreciate and celebrate the uniqueness of everyone. So that, and this is a quote, so that we can more liberally spread and share the love of Christ with a kaleidoscopic variety of people that exist in the world around us. It's the laboratory of family with all of its complexity and diversity that trains us best to move out into the world, to do it winsomely and respectfully and radically. Because it is still radical to be able to celebrate and, and affirm and accept and really honor the uniqueness of people in a healthy family. That's where it gets started. There are no black sheep in a healthy family. There's no partiality. There's no favoritism. There's no pairing off like, you know, dads and sons are over here, moms and daughters are over there, and they just don't meet. No. In healthy families, the goal is not to crank out carbon copies of dad to make the little girls into their moms. The goal is to study and celebrate your children and affirm their uniqueness and find with them the path that God might want them to take and then just shower them with affirmation as they muster up the courage to do it. How are you doing with that one? Celebration of uniqueness. Here's a fourth one. And this one's hard and it's so important. Healthy families have an unswerving vow 
against abuse. Healthy families are never going to abuse or shame or control or intimidate each other. Healthy families realize that there are, there are just some violations that do so much damage to the human soul that they have to be absolutely, categorically, uncompromisingly outlawed. The most deeply wounded people wandering around the streets of our cities today are not those who are mugged once on the subway or beat up in an alleyway or cheated by a spouse or a friend. Not even the people who witness the horrors of war firsthand, as horrific as they are. As hurtful and disturbing as all of those things are. Family experts will tell you that there is nothing that compares to the soul damage done to somebody who looked to their parents for love and nurture and instead received abuse. An emotionally fragile child looking for support from their mom and dad. Instead, they get disdain, disgust, scorn. Child desiring tenderness, needing to hear words of affirmation. They just get screamed at and cast aside. A child yearning for for nurture, for the occasional hug, instead gets slapped across the face or worse, punched in the jaw. Should never happen, ever, ever. Need I even mention it, but I guess we have to. A child that is just beginning to discover the mysteries of their own sexuality, that tender, fragile mix of wonder and excitement, and then finds a parent at the foot of their bed at night with a cruel agenda that just must make heaven shriek in horror can never happen, ever. When it comes to the soul-shattering contest, there is just, there's nothing that compares to abusive parents. They will do more damage than anyone else. And healthy families will recoil at the very thought of the conversation that we're having right now. They want nothing to do with shaming or controlling or intimidating. They want families to be safe. How safe is your family? How safe is your home? This is another one of those places where just as with a rational love, what you have lived and what you choose to practice, they need not be the same. How many of you know exactly the horrors of what we're talking about? And you have made a resolve never to let it happen in your home. Some of you made that resolve and it didn't stick. And we understand there may be lots of reasons why you repeat the pattern that you saw as a child. It cannot happen. It cannot happen. The next trait is, and believe it or not, you have to believe it, we're in the church after all, is common faith. Common faith. Even, even secular research 
will say that what contributes to a high-functioning family is that they share a common faith, a common system of belief. The Bible teaches this from cover to cover. It's the whole point of that passage that you read so beautifully, the Aru family. It teaches that parents, we, we need not just to walk with God ourselves, but to walk as a family with God, to, to impress that on our children. So the whole family is operating on the same spiritual page. So I want you to listen to this verse again. In fact, as it comes up on the screen, you may even want to say it with me. So this just gets driven down into your heart and it's there in your consciousness. Let's read it together. The great commandment of the Old Testament and then its application in Deuteronomy in chapter 6. Let's read it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Folks, when you're on the same spiritual page, you can watch as the love of God has a way of filling the hearts of everyone in the family. As the wisdom of God guides the life of your family. As the joy of God kind of raises the level of joy in your family. And the strength of the family is increased because God is at work in your family. All of the research that you will read would say the same thing, that being on the same page is one of the greatest markers of the health of a family. Being on the same spiritual page. How are you doing with that one? Not just your own faith, but the faith of your family. I know this is a tender spot for us, right? Because you have kids that you love and care about, but you're not on the same page anymore. You have grandchildren that, you, that you've watched, and, and they feels like they're not just on a different page, but it's a whole different book. Don't give up on what God can do in the life of a family. Make this the strenuous focus of your prayers. Look for every opportunity you can find, not to preach at your kids, but to model with your kids life in Christ and make sure it feels good. Because the gospel is meant to be good news. And if the only gospel they ever see modeled is a gospel of vindictiveness and punishment and harshness, there's nothing that feels good. Make sure that you're also modeling the goodness of the good news. And you say, are you on the same spiritual page as your family? So we're going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks when we spend some time reflecting on parenting. My kids... They're going to hate that message. Good news, kids. I'm not preaching that Sunday. (laughs) Here's a sixth characteristic, respect for others. A healthy family teaches respect. Like many of you, I, I did a lot of reading, a lot of reflecting over the past couple of years on racism and on prejudice. 
here's what I know and here's what you know. That those things, those, those horrific words, they are not hardwired in the lives of children when they are born. It's not an infection that you catch in the birth canal making your way into the world. Racism, prejudice, these are learned behaviors. And the learning happens most deeply at home. And there are lots of other places that may influence you growing up, but here's where it starts. Here's where it gets reinforced. Here's where it gets drilled down so deeply that it's hard to get it out. My father spent his entire career teaching at Parkdale Collegiate in Toronto. If you know the Parkdale neighborhood in Toronto, you'll know that that has always been the landing zone for each new wave of immigration in Canada. And so we would look at his class lists with names that we could barely spell, let alone pronounce, from all over the world, wave after wave of immigration. And and from time to time, we would attend the open houses and the um, and the concerts and the activities and the science nights and things at school. And, and it wasn't lost on me the way that my father would walk towards all of these people with excitement, yeah. with joy, with a bounce in his step. Not go out of his way to switch to the other side of the hallway or avoid conversation. It just never occurred to us growing up watching my dad that this should be anything but a diverse community to be celebrated. What I'm saying here is that there are certain things that families have to do. There are certain values that families need to commit to getting right. Mom, dad, don't ever tell a racist joke. Don't tell a joke about somebody's ethnicity, even if you think it's funny. Your kids pick up on it. They think it's okay to do, but it's not okay. It's particularly not okay in a Christ-centered family. It's, it's not okay. And if, if you catch yourself doing that as parents, parents, you just need to stop and apologize to your kids. So here it is. Rachel, Nicole, Joshua, I'm sorry if, if you've ever heard me do that. It's not what I believe. It's not what we need you to believe. It's not what God believes. You have never looked into the eyes of someone who does not matter to God. Everyone, every person, skin color, accent, ethnicity, everyone you look at, even if they're different from you physically, they may be challenged emotionally or spiritually or mentally. They are still someone for whom Christ shed his blood. You sang that with enthusiasm earlier in the service. And every person is only one prayer away from being an eternal brother or sister in the great family of God. We've got to get that into the lives of our kids. Respect. And one more little thing about this, just before we leave. We need to be respectful, not just of some of those uh, more obvious categories, race, gender, ethnicity, We need to be respectful of people who vote differently than us, who think differently about current issues. You know exactly the ones that I mean. 
The pandemic has exposed huge divides in the way that people think. And the church has been guilty of modeling some of the most abysmal behavior in how we relate to people who think differently. Decrying them and shouting them down and making them feel like their opinion is less valued by God or they are less holy because of what they believe. I have seen Christians obey scripture and talk respectfully about other people on the whole, but when they enter into the realm of politics, it's like all the rules get thrown away and they say horrendous things. They gossip and they think it's fair play because this is politics. It's not. It is not fair play. I also hear Christians saying terrible, awful things, criticizing Muslims and Hindus and Jehovah's Witnesses and so forth. Friends, I'm not talking about belief systems. I'm talking about people, and we must respect people. They can disagree with us about all kinds of things, but that's not an excuse to be disrespectful. It's what we have to build into our families. How are you doing on this one? How are you doing on teaching respect? Here's a seventh thing. Healthy families, they instill a sense of responsibility in each other. Small business owner made a telling observation. He said, you know, he's been hiring lots of people, hiring kids right out of college. And this is what he said. You know, they're energetic and they're very well educated. But my greatest frustration is that I have to spend so much time teaching them basic responsibilities. What did he mean? Well, he said, well, let's just start with showing up. It's hard for me to get new employees just to show up for work, let alone on time. I have to train people to return phone calls and emails. I have to train them to let somebody know when they're leaving the building and when they're coming back. Folks, this is stuff that that we should learn in family. One of the great responsibilities that family have is to instill a sense of responsibility. We don't let people off the hook here. Children shouldn't grow up with a sense of entitlement. They should have that spirit of responsibility. And if they're learning one and not the other, chances are they're learning by watching their parents. Parents, it's just part of what we do with our kids. We teach them responsibility. We give them consequences when they don't. And then when we spin them out in the world, we've prepared them really to soar. And if we don't do that, they're in trouble. We have a generation of kids that as they make their first foray into the working world are running into trouble. How are you doing with that one? Is everybody in your family learning a sense of responsibility? Are you... Are you telling each other why that's important or you're letting everybody off the hook a lot? Got to teach it, got to model it, got to reinforce it. Here's an eighth characteristic. It's play. <laughs> play. Yeah, I love this one. Of course. Healthy families play together. I mean, I was surprised at all the research that stresses just how important this is for a high-functioning family. Do you and your family have fun things that you do together, fun stories that you tell together, fun memories that you celebrate together? When you talk about families at their best, you'll often find they talk about the times that they were playing together, the fun stuff that they did. And it just becomes part of the family's shared identity and their shared experience. Whatever it is, it can be sports, 
hiking, gardening, could be dining. What it is is not so much the point, but that everybody in the family says, hey, we look forward to this thing that we do together. This is the thing that we love. This is the thing that we remember. This is the thing that when we go through thousands of digital photos, we realize they're all clustered around these few things. There can be two, three month gaps in our photos, but then we did this thing again and there's a hundred of them. And then another gap, we did that thing again, there's another hundred of them. When you play together as a family, you've got something to look forward to as a family. And it's a huge deal. How's your family doing with that one? How are you doing with playing together? Here's another one that kind of builds on that. A ninth characteristic is rituals and traditions. Because healthy families, they have a way of celebrating these things together. If we had the time, I wish we had the time and the, and the venue to do this, I would love to just circle up the chairs and hear from you what it is that are the family traditions. What are the rituals that you practice in your home? How have you carried them forward? Some of you have getting up in the morning rituals. Some of you have evening rituals. You have birthday rituals. You have holiday routines. You understand why this is so important, don't you? When a family has lots of meaningful rituals and routines, it offers a sense of security. Kid comes home and they know what's going to happen this Christmas because it's happened every Christmas they can remember. Everybody's going to get in their pajamas They're going to read the Christmas story from the Bible. They're going to pray, and then they're going to look for a pickle hidden in the Christmas tree. It's ridiculous, but but it adds something predictably wonderful to Christmas. It's that predictable environment that gives us something to to look forward to. The traditions, they can be corny, but they foster a sense of security. How many of you have good family rituals and traditions? I mean, how do you feel like you're doing with that one. How many of you, maybe you're realizing that, hey, I haven't paid enough attention to that. Not too late to bring some new ones into the life of your family. And here's the last thing for this morning. Healthy families aren't afraid of seeking help. Families that need help, they get it when they come to some kind of impasse. There's an old Chinese proverb. I, I hope this is an, I don't read Chinese, so you can tell me if, in fact, this is an old Chinese proverb, but it, I, I understand that it says nobody's family can hang a sign on their porch that says, nothing wrong here. It might just be a fortune cookie, but I, yeah. but I, I like the sentiment, though. Nobody can hang a shackle on the front of their house or a shingle that says there's nothing wrong here. You know how previous generations had a tendency to deal with family by not dealing with family. You know, the father could be a drunk, mom could be a control freak, son could be clinically depressed. But if anyone asks how the family was doing, we're fine. Yeah, we're fine. Come Sunday morning, everybody sobers up and dresses up and psychs up for an hour of public deception. Welcome to the hour of worship, the most dishonest hour in North America. And then it all unravels in the car ride on the way home. So many families in generations past, they were closed systems. Some of you have come from cultures where it's a closed system. What happens in the family stays in the family. 
which would be fine if there were help available in the family, but often there's not. And you need to get outside help to find resolution. And high-functioning families realize just how fragile a family can be. And so when they need help, they get help. They get it from their church. They get it from their small group. They get it from a friend or a Christian marriage counselor or a family counselor. They're not a closed system, and so they get help. How's that been for you? When your family has been in trouble, are you free to get help? Have you got help? Did you read something new? Did you search the scriptures? Did you go to the prayer room? Did you, did you seek out a trusted confidant, a brother or sister in Christ? Do you open up the system to get help? Or is there just too much family pride? It's a dangerous thing to keep the family closed. Now, a 10-point sermon, that's, that's enough for today. But let me just suggest as we close that of all the traits on that list, there is one that you can start to get right from today forward. And you can do it with very little training. You just have to decide to do it. And it's a decision not just that you make today, but that you make every day. And that's characteristic number one. You can choose to love irrationally. Love without limits. Love just for showing up. In a few minutes, we're going to gather at the Lord's Supper, which reminds us that God is both the guide and the giver of that kind of love, that he models it, that he mentors us in this, and that you can't out-love God. When a child feels that kind of love, it's amazing how resilient they can be, even when the circumstances of the world are hard. They're irrepressible. I mean, we need to get to work on getting all of these traits right, but moms and dads, grandparents, can we covenant around this? That we'll start here. We'll get this right. We will love irrationally, without limit. And that's the way that God has loved us. Let me pray for all of us. God, into each of our lives, there is some prayer that needs to be answered. There is some facet of our life, of our family, that needs your presence because there is some decision that we need to make, some behavior we need to learn, some habit we need to shake, some act of courage we need to take. So God, in these moments, as we gather around your table, as family in Christ, as we ponder again the example of sacrifice and love, we pray that you would do your work in us, make us open, open receptacles so that we can gather, we can receive what you would offer. And then take what we have received here, begin to apply it and and pour it out into our lives. 
God, I pray for our families. Make them safe, joyful, respectful, responsible, beautiful, faithful, love-filled, and holy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.